Who are they? How did they get here and where are they now? I'm Tyson Chastain, Director of Alumni Relations with Johnson University, and this is the Sojournal Podcast. The Sojournal Podcast is brought to you by the Alumni Association. Whether you graduated from Central Florida Bible College, Johnson Bible College, Florida Christian College, or Johnson University, you are a part of the alumni family. Join the Alumni Association and help encourage and equip alumni and students as they pursue kingdom-focused vocations. Learn more at johnsonu.edu forward slash alumni. Today, we're joined in the Sojournal podcast by Steve and Lisa Pence Cuss. Steve and Lisa are graduates of Johnson University, Tennessee. Steve from the class of 1996 and Lisa one year later, the class of 1997. Steve and Lisa, welcome to the Sojournal podcast. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Well, I really appreciate you guys joining in. Our paths have crossed uh, briefly as students here at Johnson, but I'm really looking forward to hearing about your journey because I haven't seen you much since you left. So to get started, would you mind giving a general introduction of yourselves to our listeners? Yeah, so I'm obviously Steve. I'm um, currently a lead pastor at Discovery Church in Broomfield, Colorado, which is just between Denver and Boulder. We've been married, yeah, coming right, coming right up on 25 years. We've got three kids, two boys, 20 and 17. We've got a 14-year-old daughter. Yeah, lots more to say, but that's probably it from me. I right now am a clinical mental health counselor. I transitioned, I went to Johnson for teacher education and then transitioned later. So I started my own practice and we're looking how to combine kind of our, more of our giftedness um, and who we are as we look at this next stage of life. Cool. Okay, great. How many years did you say you all have been married? I know it's like almost 25 in, on August 3rd. Yeah, it's coming right up. Yeah. <laughs> 25. When, when you said 20 year old kid, it just kind of shocked me. <laughs> yeah, it, it is shocking. He's upstairs right now. He came home from college and uh, yeah, it doesn't feel like we have a 20 year old kid, but we do. To get started, uh, I'm curious about your journey. How did you, you know, what was your early life like, your early family life, the Christian context? How did you discover Christ? That kind of thing. I was raised in a Christian home. I, I mean, I jokingly say that I was born, literally born in the church. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so cannot remember a time that I didn't know Christ. Would say that I came to find Christ on my own, probably that journey began when I was at Johnson um, and just kind of going through my own growing up and adulting years and experiencing adulting pain and figuring out who God is in that. But yeah, I've always been in the church. Yeah, I was not raised in the church. So I was raised completely out of it. Like church was just not even on our radar. And I came to Christ as a teenager. Um, My older sister had started going to church and youth group. And she came to Christ and then she kind of dragged me to youth group, although I was really excited to go. And then I became a follower of Jesus. And yeah, as it relates to Johnson, one of my favorite Johnson stories is my first week that you take that Bible entrance exam. And uh, Joel Rood, who at the time was the registrar, called me into the office, very concerned for my well-being because I got like a 21%, you know, 21 <laughs> out of 100. Because I just, I didn't know any Bible at all. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, total opposite backgrounds. Yeah. That's interesting. Lisa, you were raised in uh, a Christian home, always had that context. Where, where were you raised? I was in Bethel, Ohio, about 30 miles east of Cincinnati. And my dad was the senior minister at the church there. I mean, that was my second family. That was my family. <laughs> so 
Christianity was kind of ingrained in your family, when would you say that you actually latched on to this thing that, that, that you actually believe, you know, in, in God, that, that you have the personal relationship? When did that happen for you? You know, it's interesting because I remember I was baptized at eight and I remember beyond a shadow of a doubt that I wanted to follow Christ and that he was Lord and Savior of my life for, for everything I knew at eight years old. And, you know, my journey is more about, you know, moving from the concrete of who God is when you pray, he answers. When you pray and ask for people to be healed, he answers. Um, and then moving into those stages of life where, what do I do because he, he didn't answer in the way that it feels like it would be glorifying to him or people's lives weren't saved and tragedies happened mm -hmm. um, and figuring out at a larger sense of who God is. And then out of that, who I am and what that means. So I'd say really a lot of it started after we graduated from Johnson and Steve started graduate school. And we went through a series of just intense losses of, of friendships beginning beginning when we were in Las Vegas mm -hmm. to moving to Colorado, we lost five friends in a period of probably eight years. To death. Uh, to yeah. death, yeah. Mm. And so just figuring out that journey and then being with people who were left behind and widows and children. And it was a, it was a rich walk. Mm. You know, that's, that's interesting. And it, that sort of informs why counseling became a passion for you. So we'll get into that a little bit later. Yeah. So Steve, you were not raised in a Christian home. So uh, what was, what was your context of, of coming to faith? Yeah, I was born and raised in Perth, Western Australia, the West coast of Perth, 20 years of my life there. So I've lived most of my life now here. I'm almost 50, but I still feel very Aussie. Just, <laughs> you know, I think it's your childhood, you're, you're formed. Um, so yeah, I, I would say I was born into an adventurous family. Uh, my mum and dad to this day have fun hobbies, like fun outdoor adventure. So, you know, you know things like uh, when we would go fishing, we would go fishing off a cliff that you could get washed off with the waves. <laughs> and so my dad would be out there fishing and our, our job was to to yell out whenever a wave was coming, which of course he could see the wave. He was just keeping his kids busy. And we'd be chasing crabs and stuff around the, the pool. So a lot of a lot of my childhood was adventure, motor racing, just just a classic secular upbringing. God is not talked about. God is not really factored in. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I would say like my folks gave me an incredible moral upbringing. They're very moral people. Uh, my parents, for example, tithe. They they give ten percent mm -hmm. of their income to charity. Mm -hmm. So it was it was fascinating to have. A, a strong moral compass, a, a strong set of values, and then to discover where a lot of that really does come from. You know, the heartbeat, I think, of the universe is the love of God. Right. Um, so for me, at least, and I think my sister would say the same, it definitely informed and made sense of a lot of things. And I think it, my, my story is, I, I, for whatever reason, I felt lost as a kid. I just always felt lost. You know, some people see when the Bible talks about being lost and they see it like as a pejorative term, like it's a terrible thing. And I'm like, no, that's descriptive. Mm -hmm. Like that was me. And the church, for whatever reason, I felt found. Mm -hmm. um, so just to me, the love of God felt like coming home and it still does. 
So yeah, so I definitely, I have a huge passion to help secular-minded people discover the love of God. My family would generally look at Christians as less intelligent than non-Christians. They would look at Christians as a general rule as weak, you know, like we need help and they don't need help. And the first one I think is totally false. And the second one I think is totally true. Like Christianity does remind you as a human that you have real needs. So so yeah, I've, I've been on a huge healing journey of how Jesus has healed some assumptions in my life and some gaps and wounds in my life. Yeah. How old were you when, uh, when your sister like started getting you to go to youth group and, and when did you latch on to faith as your own? Yeah. So I would have been 12 when she started going and then I wasn't allowed to go till I was 13 because it was a high school youth group in Australia. That's high school. And then I came to Christ when I was 14. My parents, I think, probably thought we had joined a cult uh, because they wouldn't let me get baptized for a year. My sister got baptized and they're like, all right, you can do that. And then they kind of saw how she got fanatical. We both became Jesus freaks. <laughs> and so they shut down my baptism for quite a while. Oh my. And it's, it's a whole story, you know, at the time, of course, you know, I'm an angsty teen. I'm convinced <laughs> that I'm being persecuted for the faith. I, I look back on it now and I'm like, I think they were trying to be really good parents. They, <laughs> they were trying to figure out what happened to the, these kids that they'd raised <laughs> And the other interesting thing, Tyson, is, you know, I came to Christ in a wonderful, loving, fundamentalist, legalistic church. Mm. You know, all, all of that was true. I remember my sister and I, the elders would come to us and want to come and talk to my parents. And we just intuitively knew these are two radically different worlds. It'd be a bad idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. These, these very well-meaning and, and God-honoring elders don't know how to talk to unchurched people. They had been in the church so long that they had forgotten how to just have a normal relationship with unchurched people. So it was, even as teens, my sister and I kind of bridging the gap between these two worlds. Mm-hmm. I, I think in a lot of ways, that's what I'm doing now as a pastor. I'm, I'm trying to help church people understand unchurched people. And I, I still in many ways feel like, like I'm, through that lens myself. So, yeah. That's really, that's really interesting. Have your parents made any steps towards faith at all since? Gosh, like, like incremental. I, I mean, in some ways they've, they've come a long way, but my family just has so much pride. You know, we are, we are farming cusses and that means that we work hard. We do it all ourselves. The, the famous Australian prayer for the meal is you bow your head and you say, well, God, I got up early and I pulled the weeds and I did all the watering and I did all the harvesting. So thanks for nothing. Mm -hmm. That would be kind of a tongue in cheek, true Aussie prayer. It's the idea that we do it all ourselves. So from that point of view, my parents have come a long way and uh, we'll see, you know, they're getting older and we, we keep chatting about it, but it's a long, slow journey for sure. Steve, you mentioned, I'm sorry, I have to bring this up. You mentioned auto racing. How was, how was your family involved in auto racing? Yeah, the short story is my mom and dad eloped to Canada, and then they traveled the United States and Canada for a couple of years, and then they moved over to Europe, and dad uh, joined a Formula One racing team. So if anyone's ever heard of a, the Brabham family, uh, which does have a big name in America, but Jack Brabham, the dad, was the first uh, Aussie Formula One world champion. So my dad uh, worked for Jack Brabham in kind of his later career in the late 60s. And uh, my dad's boss was a guy named Ron Dennis. If anyone's ever heard of that name, he's the guy that really put McLaren on the map. So yeah, I come from a motor racing heritage. And so my childhood was was down at the racetrack. Uh, my mom, I remember when I was six or seven, mom made me racing overalls. Uh, and again, it's just, we were bored out of our minds as my dad and my uncle raced around the track. Then when I became a teenager, dad and I got into competitive go-kart racing. 
which is way beyond what you do at the local track. You have to get a proper license. You have to, like, you can't just get in a race go-kart and race it. So, um, and I race go-karts competitively. I think it was for three years. It wasn't very long because by then I'd become a Christian and church attendance and go-kart racing were in competition with each other. And I, I chose church. And I did a little bit of dirt, dirt rally driving, but that was more recreational. I never did that competitively, but my uncle is a rally navigator. So yeah, we, we have a long line of, of motor racing in our family. My cousin races a, a vintage Datsun uh, to this day. It's kind of the family Datsun. Yeah, it's a whole thing. Well, that's uh, something interesting about your journey that I'm not sure anybody knew. So that's cool. Yeah. Thank you for mentioning yeah. that. Lisa, your, your folks were, or you said your dad was a minister. Is he still ministering? So they moved to Colorado um, about 10 years ago, 10 or 11 years ago. No, to, to get closer to, to the grandkids. Yes, <laughs> yeah, to chase yep. the grandkids. Um, so he and my mom are absolutely ministering in our church. They run kind of a pastoral care ministry and um, have been deeply, yeah, deeply involved. You know, I wondered when they retired, like, what will that mean for them? Will it give them permission, you know, to do less? But no, they... This is who they are, and that continues here. It's been That's really cool. beautiful to see. Yeah, Dan's on staff at our church. He's a phenomenal pastor. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that means by proxy that Sue is right there with yeah. it. They're, they're incredible. Like, they're, obviously, they're my in-laws. They're incredible human beings and, and incredible ministers of the gospel. So Dan, is he's carrying a heavy pastoral load at our church. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about the difference between our upbringing because growing up in the church— you hear Steve's story and mine would have been, I remember looking forward to seeing some of the, they seem like really older men, you know, in our church who would have been elders. But I, me- I remember on Sundays, it would be a whisker contest to see who had shaved and who hadn't, right? Because you're just embraced and all of this and telling people off or who, who needed to shave because their whiskers hurt, you know? Um <laughs> I remember at an early age finding worth by going to the old men's class and saying hello, going to the nursery and seeing all the babies and all of that. And so just looking at the difference between us, like in our journeys, I think for me, it was learning how not to strive to find my worth, which is typical, you know, but very deeply ingrained in separating, understanding the grace of God and being able to be who you are. And then, and Steve has been refreshing for me in that, because when you come to Christ at an older age, or, you know, even in the teens and you felt lost first, Mm -hmm. and then you're found like, that's a beautiful place to be. And sometimes I think when we grow up in the church, we don't allow ourselves to feel lost because it's wrong. And so stepping into that, I don't know, it's, it's been beautiful to combine our worlds and um, understand a deeper sense of the love of Christ. Wow. So one being raised in the Christian home, one not being raised in the Christian home, yet you both found your way to Johnson. Now, Lisa, I know you being from Ohio, I suppose you had a lot of options in front of you. I mean, Cincinnati, Kentucky, Lincoln, Great Lakes. I mean, all of these probably closer to you than what Johnson University, Tennessee was. So how did you find Johnson, Tennessee? Very purposely. I have an older brother, so just the youngest in my home. And there's many perks to being a pastor's kid, but there's also, I, you're watched a lot. And I felt that. And so I wanted to go away and not be associated with where my parents went to school, which would have been um, Cincinnati Bible College at the time, then CCU. Um, My brother went to Milligan and I wanted to kind of be close to him, but not be the same school. So 
I visited a lot of places. I know Asbury was up there in the running for me. Then when I went to Johnson and just staying in the dorm, the dorm rooms with people, and it just was a sense of this is me. It hit all of it for me. It was me and it was away and I didn't know a soul. And that's kind of how I wanted it. Did you visit Johnson before you made the decision to come here? I did. I visited my senior year. Uh Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So it was more about the logistics of being away from watchful eyes, but being near your brother that brought you to Johnson. (laughs) Actually, it was my desire to find myself apart from my family. Mm, Um, Not just watchful eyes so much. Just find, find out who I was outside of the identity of my parents. My town was really small. I mean, Bethel was... 2000 people in the actual town itself. And then the Tate, like Bethel Tate, the township surrounding it would have totaled 10,000, but that's still so small. Mm-hmm. So I think more, it was, yeah, just a drive to figure out who I was, who am I on my own? Um, and I love Tennessee. And then I'm a gut intuition person very much so, and kind of just trusted that I know when I stepped on a campus and Johnson did not have the tanning areas, <laughs> I had everything else. <laughs> well, you know, that was something we forgot to put in the new athletic and recreation that's center right. too. Right. That's, that's so bad. Yeah. It's too bad. When you then ultimately decided to pursue college, was it always teacher education that was on your mind or was that just the convenient program to take when you came? No, it was. I mean, when I was younger in life, there was a point where I wanted to be a real estate agent <laughs> that quickly passed. I did so much babysitting, working with children, nannying, and had some times in school where I, I had to work really hard for the grades that I got, which means that I also came up with tricks, you know, to be able to be able to learn stuff. And I developed, I, you know, just a passion for how kids learn, I would say at a very young age. In fact, Honestly, that was probably another piece of it is I was looking for an excellent teacher education program. And in comparison, Johnson's was off the charts. Hmm. Okay, Steve, I got Lisa's story about finding Johnson. What was yours? How, how does a guy from Perth, Australia find Johnson University yeah. in Knoxville, Tennessee? It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. So one of the Johnson alumni, David Timms, uh, he's now at William Jessup University. Um, he was my preacher's son. So when I came to Christ, David was at Johnson. So I didn't know him. I got baptized. I was in the youth group and uh, he came home from college one day and he preached, you know, the, the, the student preacher. And I just, I'd never heard anything like it to this day. Anyone who knows David, he's just a remarkable thinker and communicator, but um, he was heavily influenced by Fred Craddock. And of course, Craddock is a famous Johnson alumni. And I just, instead of telling us what to think, David just like opened up the, the floor with his posture, his tone and his words to invite us into a, a kind of invite us into a consideration. It was just very gentle, but it was provocative. It was, I was blown away. So I just, that didn't mean anything to me at the time. I think, I don't remember how old I was. I must've been 16 maybe, but when I was 17, I really felt a call to ministry and there's a long story, but at one point I, I sat down with David, he had since moved back home to plant a church. And I said to him, well, what is that? What? Because I don't know anyone else that speaks about the Bible and God the way you do. And he, he did say, you know, Johnson's preaching program, it's the way it approaches theology, kind of produces this approach. That really appealed to me. So I did apply to several schools, and Johnson was the only one that wrote back in America. I, I had already enrolled in an Australian Bible college at that point, and I changed my plans to come to Johnson and Larry Green. 
uh, was a huge piece of that. And then when I got there, Jim Butterworth, some of those incredible guys in the admissions office, but Larry was the one that reached back out and connected and it worked out. And the the other piece of the story is Aussies, a lot of us go and walk a bike. A, A lot of us travel. It's just part of what you do when you're in that age. So it was very much in my family's heritage that you'd leave the country for a while, go explore. And so that, that was a fairly normal thing uh, for us to do. So yeah, I came, I, I, Knoxville was a huge culture shock from <laughs> beach Western Australia, but uh, amazing. Yeah. It was an incredible thing. So when you came, you, you were focused then on the preaching program here. Yeah. Yeah. Majored in, I, I didn't remember the major, I mean, major in Bible, I guess. I didn't even know minor in preaching or but yeah, preach, for me, it was preaching and Bible. Mm-hmm. And, and when I had that conversation with Joel Root, I remember him being so concerned for me when he gave me the failing grade in Bible. And because, you know, so many of the kids at Johnson were from the Midwest and Bible Bowl and Sunday school. They just had a, a rich heritage. I could not successfully put Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the correct birth order. I couldn't. I didn't know. I'd never heard of the Exodus. I mean, I was just green. So Joel gives me the grade and I was so excited. I remember... I was like, this is amazing. I got an F. And he's like, I don't, I don't understand what's happening right now. And I was like, look, if I'm this bad at Bible, this is exactly where I should be. You know, right. I, was, I was really here to get a good Bible education. And, uh, you know, a lot of those early professors were profound. Several of them have passed away even like last year. Dr. David Reese was a huge, profound impact on my life. And, and I know thousands of students had that story. But when he died, we mourned uh, because he he taught he he taught me how to fall in love with the Bible because he fell in love with it. He just kind of loved it in front of us, you know. Uh-huh. So so many. So I I just and obviously some of the professors that are still around, Dr. Mattingly and Dr. Bridges, and incre- just incredible scholarship. So I, I felt profoundly grateful for what I what I took away from Johnson. Mm-hmm. Well, you opened that can of worms, so let's go ahead and walk down that path about your experience at Johnson. Uh, Inevitably, when people start talking about Johnson, I, I can't think of a one who is a Tennessee graduate that didn't mention David Reese. So that's yeah. uh, that's just you knew he was in elite company. Uh, of course, yeah. Bob Martin. Yeah, um, he just had a, a way about him that garnered respect. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. But yeah, what, Tom, what Tom, Tommy Smith? Yeah, Tommy was, Smith was huge. Yeah, yeah. Tommy and Debbie really took me under their wing as a freshman because I I didn't know anybody. You know, I I had not visited before I moved here, and and those that first semester was profoundly lonely. Mm-hmm. You know, culture shock and homesickness, and you know, American Australia, same English language, just barely, but everything else is quite different. The way we think. Uh, our worldview, all of that. Mm-hmm. And Tommy and Debbie were incredibly generous. Their kids were young, you know, teens, and they took me on weekends, lots of meals at their house. So yeah, not just the, the classroom stuff, but I think Johnson's culture is pretty remarkable that way. Um, so yeah, lots of, uh, you know, Stan McDaniel, uh, <laughs> another huge name. I never had the privilege. Oh my goodness. I, I, I did the early shift in the kitchen, you know, I did a work study. And uh, I, I don't remember if it was 4.30 or 5 a.m., but it was rudely early, that whatever time you're supposed to be at work. And there's a couple of times I'd sleep in and stand. It was really important to him to get his morning paper, his morning coffee, right when the cafeteria opened. And anytime I would sleep in, he would come into the dorm and scream my name in the hallway. 
uh, and call me an anti-Australian. I remember one time he yelled in, he's like, you're an anti-Australian and you're a disgrace to your country. He's just obviously <laughs> messing. But he'd yell it as he'd try to wake up as many kids as he could to publicly shame me for sleeping in. Yeah, um, yeah he was a character. Yeah. <laughs> I heard that about him. That's, that's, that sounds <laughs> like the character I've heard about. That's great. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lisa, what about you? Who are some faculty members that stand out? Yeah, definitely. I think with with David Reese, with Dr. Reese, you got such a, he brought so much humanity into yeah. his teaching, mm -hmm. which just, just kind of like sucked you in to understand really the Old Testament in, in a powerful way, not just as laws, but as humans and as a God chaser, I think, you know, mm -hmm. for me. Yeah, so David Reese and Tommy Smith stick out. Dr. Templer was a phenomenal phenomenal professor. I actually was a troublemaker um, in that class. No. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I actually got kicked out of class. Really? Yeah, I got kicked out of class for one class. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, I had several things. So, um, but, but Dr. Templer was phenomenal and provided, oh my gosh, I got to student teach under the um, teacher of the year when I was in, which just allowed me the opportunity to lead a class through the governor coming to visit when I was student teaching mm -hmm. um, because the teacher of the year had to be out due to a death. And so I got to run things and just, I mean, just phenomenal stretching experiences. The creativity that was brought in was, was absolutely, it was incredible. Mary Lou Martin, an absolute gem. Yes. Absolute gem. Chokes me up talking about that lady. But yeah, I think um, her giddiness and absolute joy, that woman has energy, I think, more than any other. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So she's a gift. What about uh, experiences in general, spiritual, social? I loved what we called Church on the Hill, which was over in the student center, right? In the in the basement that we'd have on Sunday night. And that was all led by students and it was small and the worship was incredible. And out of, probably out of all the sermons we heard, I remember more from there than I do from anything else. Huh. Um, it was just students spreading their wings and sharing what they were learning. Yeah, I remember just times with friends rapping and cutting loose, <laughs> you know, which was fun. Rapping, not as in gifts, but as in no, oh. like rapping. <laughs> yeah, like we have pictures on Facebook. They they pop up from the past, and so yeah, we bring our rapper selves out with our backwards hats, and you know, <laughs> just being our own fun rebellious selves. Um, Steve, yeah. what about you? The, 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 is there anything that jumps out? Yeah, it's it's funny. You know, a lot of the students really buckled against the curfew that we had. I don't know where Johnson is nowadays with curfew. I loved it because that's when my friends had to be in the dorm. I didn't, you know, I didn't have a car and I had almost no money. Um, so just being able to hang out after, I don't even remember what time it was now, 10 or 11 PM at night. Uh -huh. Yeah. So dorm, dorm life was amazing. And I, I didn't go to college till I was 20. Um, so I left, I graduated high school, got called to ministry. And then I was in the workforce for three and a half years. It was so much fun to go from being like responsible in the business world to just playful in a college that you know be around most of my friends were just a couple of years younger than me mm -hmm. and it was delight it was fun it was just fun to be young again because I think I grew up pretty quick as a late teen mm -hmm. and needed the fun and then the downside to me uh th this may have been unique to that era but how insulated Johnson was mm -hmm. I, I would say at the time the problem was it cut me off from unchurched relationships 
Mm. I don't, it didn't do it intentionally, but it just, it, Johnson forged everyone on campus. It was all quite that way. And I'm sure it's not that way now, but that would be the, the shadow side of my experience was I was always the minority Christian in the majority culture. And then I went to Johnson and we were all majority. And I'm not convinced Tyson that being the majority culture for Christians is a good thing. Mm. I, I think in the history of the church, we have thrived when we're on the margins and so leaving Johnson for me was a journey back to being a marginalized. So we did a lot of our ministry in Las Vegas. And then we've here in Denver area, we're about in our county, about 8% of people are church people and 92% are not. I personally think that's where the church thrives. So that would have been the side of it that at the time it felt amazing. It was amazing to be around fellow believers and everyone's talking about worship and the text and stuff like that. But then the shadow side of some of those late night conversations got into theological snobbery, you know, stuff that the kinds of discussions that young people have about theology when you first learn it, that doesn't really matter to your own church friends. And mm -hmm. so that was the side I think I then had to grow out of. Uh, I think that's also part of development. Right. Yeah. It's <laughs> you a know, young, it's like a, I think that's yeah. part of the college age development too, to go through the here's all the things we know. And, yeah. and then you learn, ah, there's a whole lot I don't know. Yeah. And we, you know, we have, we have college kids come and do a year internship with us at the church. And we still see some of that. And we're like, Hey, let go meet some unchurch people, figure out where they're hurting, what they hope for and learn how to contextualize the gospel with them yeah. in an area where, you know, we talk about how do you reach unchurch people? How do you reach unchurch people that don't care? Mm -hmm. they, they're just, and they're very resourced. Yeah. Well, feel like they don't need, yeah, wealthy, oh, yeah. intellectual, mm -hmm. well-educated, and indifferent to the gospel. That's a good challenge. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Wow. Yeah. When I asked you guys about your Johnson journey, I find it interesting that neither one of you mentioned finding each other. So tell me how you guys <laughs> no, discovered each other. <laughs> oh, man. How long do you want the story? Yeah, <laughs> yeah we came in as freshmen together. Um, and we were, all, we were in the same friend group and it was an incredible friend group. I don't know how big it was, probably 20 or 30 students. Yeah. I remember the night Steve came in because it was a big deal that we had an Australian on campus. Um, and he does not remember me yeah. on that first night. Yeah. It's, it's shocking. I, I was, it was like a 35 hour flight to yeah. get from where I lived. I just said goodbye to my family. I think I was in some kind of PTSD and, and jet lag. So yeah, the first impression was not great where I did not leave a good first impression. Uh, but yeah, the short story is we tried dating our sophomore year and we ended up dating our senior year. And between those two, we'd become just very dear friends. Mm. But yeah, I mean, I remember the first time I was like, man, I really want to ask this girl out. And just sorting out dating in America as an Aussie, um, as somebody who already felt extremely, I felt extremely socially awkward, particularly around women, um, just for my own personal battle of journey of high school was bad, you know, like high school dating was just bad. So that was scary. And then learning how to Americans date was a journey. So I was pretty late to the party. So Steve and I and Jonathan Wolfgang were walking out of a student council meeting, all three of us talking. And I hear Steve just call out, hey, do you want to go see a movie? To which I answer, sure. And Jonathan also answers, absolutely. And so the story is, after that, I leave and Steve says real quickly to Jonathan, hey, I actually don't want you to come, but can I borrow your car? <laughs> yeah, I didn't And that have, was our first date. I was so afraid. Yeah, I was so afraid I couldn't call Lisa by name. Like I couldn't say, Lisa, would you like to? So I just announced generically yeah. and 
and ended up accidentally dating Jonathan. So he, <laughs> yeah, we had to cancel him in the date and yet use his vehicle. It was yeah. tricky. And then I was panicking driving from Brown Hall to, to Lisa's dorm. Like, how is how am I going to explain that Jonathan's not, <laughs> not in his own vehicle? Like, it was a huge problem for me. So, yeah, yeah that was a bumpy start. Yeah. Now, was that in the sophomore year or in the senior year? That was sophomore that was year. Sophomore year. So we, I was kind of just the queen of first dates. I went through a season where I was trying to figure out some things about relationships. And so I would say, I would date anybody who asked me for the first time. And then that was it. Cause I wanted to focus on other things. And so we just maintained a friendship and Steve went to Montana to work on a children's ranch our junior year. And we ended up writing quite a few letters and talking back and forth. And I realized I, I adored Steve and I was super intended, intimidated by his vision and by what I understood that he wanted to do. Um, I mean, he was the guy that would stay, he would go during Christmas breaks and stay in homeless shelters as a homeless person mm -hmm. um, so that everybody else there, but he was a peer. Um, and I love that. And it frightened me. And my understanding of what Steve wanted to do would be to live in a cardboard box in the inner city. And that just that triggered my fears. And yeah, I couldn't see how I fit in, I think. And so we had major conversations while you were in Montana about vision and what we wanted to do. And Steve was like, Lisa, that's why I do all that stuff now. I'm not expecting to raise a family in the inner city right, right there in a cardboard box. And um, so we just had a lot of learning about, about each other and life and yeah. yeah. And I had a lot of growing up to do. I had, I was a pretty intense human with a strong mother Teresa complex. Like there's a lot. We've learned a lot. Yeah. Lots matured <laughs> since then. Okay. So were you married then before you left Johnson? So you graduated. for me, yes. And for Lisa, no. So I graduated in 96 and we married that summer. And then I, we stayed in Knoxville. We moved down on um, the French Broad River, the single wide trailers down there. Felt like a mansion. Oh, we loved it. Oh that my was gosh. amazing. We would have people come to visit and can I take you on a tour through our mobile home? Like it yeah. just, after a dorm, it felt huge. But <laughs> what's also true is still the most beautiful setting out we've ever lived in as a home, you know, where our home, I mean, it's right on the river. Mm -hmm. So that's when I started my chaplaincy at, at University of Tennessee Hospital. Oh, okay. And then Lisa finished her final year married. Yeah. And then I, I went to Emmanuel after that for an end of. What happened after Johnson? What's, what's your journey been like? Yeah, I thought when I came to America, I'd go to college and then come home. And there's no question, like marrying Lisa, in some ways, it didn't shift that. It just added the possibility of missions work anywhere in the world or United States. Mm -hmm. So it's not that us getting married said, oh, now we're going to be in the States. We graduated from Johnson wondering about global missions. I remember talking to Norm Dungan quite a bit about it. But God really took us on what feels now as we look back at a unique journey, um, the clinical pastoral education chaplaincy at UT Hospital is one of the finest in the nation. And I got to be part of that and it changed my life. Mm -hmm. And it sent me on a path of studying family systems theory and integrating systems theory into church leadership, organizational leadership. It's, it's a lot of what led both Lisa and I into integrating theology and psychology. So mm -hmm. So then uh, somewhere in there, I got a full ride scholarship to Emmanuel, which was an incredible gift. And my experience at Emmanuel, uh, you know, Christian Church Seminary was phenomenal. I felt like Johnson and Emmanuel was an incredible combination. 
And from there, we moved to Las Vegas. At, at that point, after Emmanuel, we were thinking about going to, back to Australia. We actually tried. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We looked at some opportunities and um, Lisa was pregnant with our first child and then gave birth to our first child while I was writing my thesis at Emmanuel. And by that point, I'd constructed a thesis on systemic poverty and what the Bible says about it and how a suburban church can really not just do charity, but like a lot of that stuff that's out now, toxic charity and when helping hurts, that kind of stuff. That was all in the incubation phase when I was going through grad school in the 90s. So I was studying those guys in the 90s and trying to help the church move from charity to reciprocity and actual systemic structural poverty and racism. And so uh, Central Christian Church in Las Vegas, um, Jonathan Wolfgang had headed out there as a teaching pastor, and he kind of opened the door for us. And I got to basically put my grad thesis into practice. They gave us a lot of money and a lot of people to try to put this thesis into practice. So we were in Vegas for four and, four and a half, half years. years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. And, then, and then we moved to uh, Colorado to be lead pastors. Yeah. So were you invited to Colorado or was that a position you were looking for as a change? We were looking for as a change in Las Vegas. We had um, two sons while we were there and just knew that was not the environment we wanted to raise kids. Although it was rich. Our experience there was incredible, incredible community. Um, But just as we looked kind of at who we were and our values and what we wanted to do and just felt the Lord stirring too, to, in some ways our nest was being made uncomfortable. Um, And it was we were just prompted um, to I, see. Yeah, I had an itch to try to create a culture, a kind of church culture that my parents would come to. And I, I got to say, I mean, Central Christian in Vegas, they know how to reach unchurched people yeah, phenomenally. Absolutely. Um, but I was really drawn to the intellectual hostile skeptic. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't mean hostile, like angry, but just skeptical. And then, okay, so I created a department in a mega church in Vegas that really did systemic poverty. Could we actually shape an entire church culture? So like our church in Colorado, we, we tithe our land to the poor. We have affordable housing, affordable counseling clinic is on its way. Like we've really tried to take seriously, what if a church tithes its land and its ministries for the needs of the city? So our meals ministry uh, also provides meals for social work clients. And uh, we work with police victims advocates. We, we work with our city leaders on what they'd like to see on our land to reduce poverty in our city. So you kind of need to be a lead pastor to have to be able to really shape the vision over time of a whole church. And, and that's what we came here to try to do and to, you know, preach really, in, my, in a lot of ways. I'm circling back to David Timms to, to have a chance to preach and shape a culture through the pulpit has also mm-hmm. been a real passion. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, Lisa, you started as a teacher education, a teacher and now a counselor. Navigate that journey for us. So I taught fourth grade for four years full time. And then when we were in Las Vegas, I worked in their children's department. And I also worked one year in a school teaching children with autism, which was huge learning for me. Mm-hmm. And when we came to Colorado, I did some, I was, I loved, I was involved with some homeschooling organizations that, that set up school. And so you didn't have to teach to standards, but you got to be super creative. And so one of the pieces for me was working with um, children. I got to teach electronics robotics and we got to build all these robots and do sumo wrestling and all this fun stuff. And whenever you're teaching from the top down rather than piece by piece to build something, 
it's a new way of learning for kids, but it also brings a lot of anxiety out. It's exciting, but things don't work the way you want to, and you've got to work together. And so I worked with a lot of anxiety, um, learned about myself. I loved parent-teacher conferences, love them, because parents come in, and I mean, I always went way over because we all have major concerns about our kids. And so just hearing that and, and bringing different perspective. So I just, I learned about myself that I began spending more time working on the anxiety than I was on the content <laughs> that I was supposed to teach on. And that that was where I was drawn. Alongside that in my own journey, being raised as a pastor's kid and being married to a pastor and my own natural people-pleasing tendencies, just trying to figure out who am I as a woman of God and really bigger than that, who is God? Um, so I went through a two-year class with a woman who was a um, pastoral counselor, and she had put together a curriculum that combined theology and psychology. And our very first semester was basically looking deeply at the fall, and it was, who am I? And it cut me to my core. Like, it, it kind of brought out some assumptions that I had about the shoulds and nots of how life should be. And really looking deeply at the heart of God and his story that just needed some alignment, you know, and was inviting. But it's there's also an area of grief when you've believed one way and built some things on assumptions and then they're not they're not true. So in that, I was figuring out more of who I was and just this longing, I think, um, to chase that came in me, just to find rightness with the human condition and with who God is. And then the other piece of that is the loss that we experienced. Yeah, it's still a part of us. So when you are in the hospital room with four kids who are learning for the first time that their dad won't come home, something in me was like, wow, how do you walk with people in a different way besides just the hug and, and holding? Like, what, what does this look like? So God was definitely just knitting in me. Um, a desire for a, a deeper journey of what healing looks like, both internally, emotionally, and spiritually. And so through that, I decided to go back to school to get my master's in counseling. And now have I built my, my own practice and I've done a lot of training with trauma. And so that's come my way quite a bit. And I'm loving what I'm doing. Um, continue to learn more about, you know, a whole lot more about who God is as healer. And interesting enough, learning more how to not feel like we have to fix, you know, that um, learning more about his role in all of this, whether I'm working with people who are believers or not, and yeah, how to be with and ask the questions and hold with and uh, yeah, reframe, but it's a beautiful journey. Mm. Wow. So Steve, do you have any published works or anything that kind of uh, embraces <laughs> what you're trying to accomplish in uh, Colorado? With the uh, systemic poverty stuff? Uh-huh. No. Is there a resource um, you'd recommend? Um, Bob Lupton, he wrote a book called Theirs is the Kingdom. And uh, he also wrote Toxic Charity. I'd start there. And then World Vision, they're urban development practitioners who learn how to go into places, find the resources, and listen to the marginalized voices. And that's really the difference, Tyson, is, is so many churches, they really do mean well. It comes from a good heart and a good intent to, to do something for God. But they'll start a program without ever asking who's already doing that program. And if you, if you stop seeing the local government as hostile and see them as an ally, 
you know, in mission, in missiology, we're actually trained to look for the person of peace. So like when a missionary goes to New Guinea in a new, a new village, they look for the person of peace and they befriend them and ask their help. That's all I've done is I go into the city and I'm looking for social workers and police officers and school principals and city leaders who want to help people in need. And we just find the gaps and we say, what are you doing? How can we help with what you're doing? And then what do you wish someone else would do? And that's all we do. Hmm. But a, a lot of pastors, they really think that this is not the gospel. But um, so much of the culture thinks the church is irrelevant or dangerous. But if you can help fill the needs of your city, you will reach skeptical, hostile people because they can't. No one is doing what the church is doing with these kinds of things. And as you study the church history, it was the church that was the first in the Roman Empire to take in orphans, to build universities. So we're just trying to recapture that vision and, and help the people that drive by our property who think that following Jesus is nuts. They think the idea that we believe in the resurrection is nuts, but they say, that's the church that, that eliminated the waiting list of foster kids in their city. That's the church that they'll help anybody with affordable professional therapy, you know, that kind of stuff. And they might actually come and hear the gospel. So no, I don't have anything written on it. Um, maybe one day, but I feel like what we do is so small compared to what some, the, the, there are movements of this happening all over the country. Um, you know, people, famous people like Tim Keller, his church is doing miraculous stuff in New York City around this kind of thing. So I usually point to people to better resources. Mm -hmm. Still, what you've given us there is excellent. Two more questions before I let you go. First question is, what is something that you've learned throughout your journey that you would want to pass on to everyone listening to this podcast? When I was in seminary, we had all of these well-meaning older pastors come into our classroom and try to tell us how to not burn out. And we had this guy, Fred Norris came in and Fred had to be in his seventies. And he came in and he said, look, I'm here to tell you, you might lose your faith. You might have doubt. You might burn out. It's okay. There's something on the other side of it. There's gospel on the other side. Even if you lose your faith, it doesn't mean it's gone forever. I think that's what I would want to share with, with particularly if there's students listening to this, mm -hmm. is I, I would not want to give any advice on how to avoid the mistakes we've made or the pain that we've gone through. I would just want to say that's going to happen. It's a guarantee in ministry. If you're in ministry, you, you have to navigate pain. Your pain, uh, sitting with the pain of others, but there's gospel in it. Um, if you do burn out, there's gospel on the other side of burnout. It might be that burnout is the best thing that ever happens to you because our whole belief is based on death and resurrection. Mm -hmm. So I, I get real jumpy about, um, you know, the kind of words of like, hey, avoid what I had to learn the hard way and just say, yep, it's hard and God is good. And, and just keep chasing the goodness of God through the heart, I guess is what I would say. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Lisa, what about you? Just very similar to that. I think I would say, man, there's a lot of permission in being human. And when we can give ourselves permission to be human and not our, expect ourselves to be perfect or get it right, or, you know, hold to that, there's a beautiful journey and that um, God is at work. And sometimes I think we flip it and feel like we have to be so rightly at work in order for God to be able to do his thing. There's, there's permission to not get it right and to still be valuable, you know, and there's permission to see what God is doing before you, before you even know what you're doing. Um, and that there's always time to jump on board and God's working with you the whole way. Wow. That's great. 
Okay, last question I have to ask you. I've been asking of all of our podcast guests. Imagine that the entire world is going to listen to this podcast for the next 60 seconds. What are you going to tell the world in your 60 seconds? While you think about your answer, let me remind our listeners that the Sojournal Podcast is brought to you by the Alumni Association. Whether you graduated from Central Florida Bible College, Johnson Bible College, Florida Christian College, or Johnson University, you are a part of the alumni family. Join the Alumni Association and help encourage and equip alumni and students as they pursue kingdom-focused vocations. Learn more at johnsonu.edu forward slash alumni. So Steve and Lisa Cuss, graduates of Johnson University, Tennessee from the classes of 1996 and 1997, currently working in Broomfield, Colorado. What 60-second message would you give to the world? I would say that every human being before they die has to come to terms with the claims of Jesus Christ. And in a world where you kind of get to choose what you believe, Jesus is the only being that claimed to die for our sin and our shame and claimed to raise from the dead so that we could live forever. And that's such a bold, audacious claim. You can't just dismiss it. You have to grapple with it. I I think every human being has to decide, is there a God? And if there's a God, what does this God want? And I think in Christ, we learned that God wants to be our friend. He wants to be our companion and our God, our, our sovereign king. And that human beings are, are most happy and alive when we are connected to God. So my 60-second message would be, look into the claims of Jesus. Some of the smartest people in the world believe it. So it's not nonsense. It's actually bedrock truth. And I've given my life to it. And I hope you would too. Good stuff. Lisa. Yeah. I would probably say um, that most of us feel that we are hardwired to connect deeply, whether it's with one or two people or with a whole bunch, um, that we're created to connect with others and created to connect with God and to pay attention to the hole in our heart that we feel that we feel um, that we're trying to fill either with others or through things. And those places that we are frustrated with God and feel like God might've fallen short um, or where we put blame on others. And what happens if we look at those holes in our, in our lives or those longings that we have and surrender them rather than trying to fill them ourselves. That's probably (laughs) what I say. And in a nutshell, I think I just want people to know they're deeply beloved and there's more to life than what people assume there is. Perfect. Steve and Lisa, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for giving us your time today and being guests on the Sojournal podcast. Yeah, thanks for having us on, Tyson. It was wonderful. Yeah. God bless you all. The Sojournal Podcast is a production of the Alumni Relations Office at Johnson University, edited by Tyson Chastain, music by Loyal Love, podcast graphics by Rachel Woolard. Tune in to other Sojournal Podcasts, dropping each Monday on Anchor FM, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Thanks for listening.